0: Good morning. It's great to be with you guys here this morning. I have a gift uh, before we get started on the sermon for for Mary and Colin, and this is a um, traditional Native gift. A lot of times, a blanket is given as a, as, as a sign of friendship and love, and and there's a, there's symbolism in it. As you um, you, as, what I'm going to do is I give it to them and I wrap it around them, and um, it's Oh, uh, yeah, that'd probably be better, huh? It uh it symbolizes wrapping them in, in my love and my prayers and. Just um, the appreciation for them and love for them that they, uh, I really appreciate them. And I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be in ministry. I probably wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for them and for RUF and their love for me over the years. So I just, you, I just want to say thank you guys. And thank you. You mean me a lot to me. <laughs> So for today's sermon, we're going to be looking at Luke 19. But before we do that, I have a question for you. Have you ever had a time when you felt stuck? Maybe you had a flat tire and you're on the side of the road and your battery died. Or maybe this was before cell phones. You can think back and you know, maybe you don't even know how to change a tire and you're stuck there and you don't know what to do. Or maybe you've, you've had a time in your life when you've been stuck in a difficult situation with a job or a relationship, maybe a relationship at work, or you've lost a job and you feel you've got nowhere to go. You don't know what to do. And for me, I have a story. It's a funny story about myself. When I was stuck, I was about seven or eight years old. And and I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but I'm like this, that I, I tend to touch things and feel textures. And if there's a wall that has bumps on it, I'll walk and run my fingernail along it. Uh, I kind of do that when it comes to things. So I had the tendency as a kid to crawl into things and to get into things and uh, not always do things that I'm supposed to be doing. And we were at Maureen Bishop's house and we were playing with, with her, her kids, and they, uh, she had a stool, or kind of a wooden chair, like, like uh, with, with four legs and the little crossbars that go on it, and so I climbed, I tried to stick my head in there, for whatever reason, and uh, I got stuck, and so I, I, I stood up, and the chair was on my head, and I started screaming and crying and yelling and, and uh, freaking out, because I was pulling the chair as hard as I could, and, and bending, and couldn't get the chair off my head, and of course, I started, like I said, I started freaking out, and I was scared, I started thinking, you know, what, what happens if this chair stuck on my head? And people see me like this and it's going to be embarrassing. Or what if they have to get a saw and they have to cut this off and they cut me? And, you know, those are the thoughts running through my head as a seven, eight year old. And of course, as you can see, I don't have the chair on my head anymore. Miss <laughs> uh, Bishop, she got me to sit down calm and she just took the chair off my head and I was fine. But in, in the middle of that, in the middle of being stuck, we get overwhelmed with fear and thoughts and we become scared and we become afraid. It's it's scary. We freak out. It's 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 difficult. We've lost control. We've lost uh, we've lost ourselves, and we're afraid people are going to see us. So as I was mentioning that, as 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 you thought about a time when you were stuck, that this this sermon today, this story about Zacchaeus, it's one you've probably heard. It's one you likely know. It's it's very well known uh, throughout throughout the church, and you teach it. It gets taught to kids all the time. It's a sermon about someone who's stuck and someone who needs to be unstuck. If you guys will stand with me. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning and we look at your word and we know that we're sinners. We need your help. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. Father, we pray that during this sermon we can see you as more beautiful and more glorious and more powerful. And that we can draw closer to you and become more and more like Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys can, can be seated. Um, this is one of my favorite Bible stories, and it's, it's, I think it's become that over the last 11 years. Um, for the first nine years, I was the children's ministry director with Sacred Road and would, would lead uh, kids programs. So we, we have short-term teams that come in the spring and the summer, and we have kids, and they'll, what we do with them is we, we have kids club and we'll act out Bible stories. So I've, I've been leading that for a long time, and this is always a fun one to do, because with Zacchaeus, you pick the smallest, littlest kid you can get, and then you pick the tallest person to be your tree. And it's, a, it's always fun, because then they get to climb up on the shoulders and to be the tree, and it, it's a good contrast, it's a, it's a great story, it's a beautiful story. And we think about, in life, when, when someone needs to change, when someone needs to have a big turnaround in their life, they need something powerful outside of themselves to make that happen. If you think about stories you've heard of drug addicts or people that are violent or idolaters or drunkards, they need something powerful to change them. And and this story of Zacchaeus is a story of someone who's changed. It's someone who needed to change and he changed because Jesus, because of Jesus. So when we look at Zacchaeus, who was he? Well, it's the only story we have about him in the Bible. He's not mentioned in Matthew or Mark or John, but only here in the Gospel of Luke. And if you look at verses 1 through 4, just to recap, It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So we know he's from Jericho, he's wealthy, he's a tax collector, he's short, and he wanted to see Jesus. That's all the backstory we have. So from that backstory, like I said, it's not that much, but we can gather a good bit about Zacchaeus and what he's like. It says here that he is the chief tax collector. And, and again, some of you may know this, but it's important to remember what a tax collector is, what a tax collector was. And in, in Roman times, they didn't have cash registers or machines or the IRS, anything like we've got today. So what the Roman government would do is they would make a local tax collector. And they would, they would kind of put, up, put it up for a bid, and whoever paid the most would get the job. And so then the tax collector would go around door to door and collect money from people. And they would have the power of the government behind them. Sometimes they'd be with soldiers. And they would, and you know, the, the king may say, get $10 from everybody, right? Maybe get $10 from everybody, just as an example. And so they would go door to door and get $10 from everybody. But there, wasn't, uh, there were no newspapers. There, was no, there might have been a proclamation, but most people didn't know what was going on. So the tax collector, to, to make up the money that they paid for their job, they would say, hey, everybody has to pay $15 or $20 or $40 or $60 or $80, $100, whatever, and nobody could challenge them because they had Roman soldiers with them. And what are you going to do? And so they were famous for that. And it's a, it's a great deal if you're in that position because you make a lot of money and you're, you're, you're doing well for yourself. But it's also a job that would stink because you're doing that job and you're making people angry. You're ripping, they know that you're ripping them off. And you know that you're ripping them off. But they can't do anything to stop you. So you just have free reign to do that. And so he's doing that. He's going around making lots of money. It says He's wealthy. He's getting rich, and he's doing it by cheating people. So we, we, have, we have that for Zacchaeus. But not only is he cheating people, right, but he's working for the Romans. And if you, if you think back to this time, Israel had been conquered, and, or they'd been invaded and conquered by the Romans about 100 years earlier, and there were soldiers there who regularly killed Jewish people and tortured them, and, and they occupied the country. So they were the occupiers. All the tax collectors were working for the Romans, so all the Jewish people not all of them, but most of them hated the Romans, but they would have really hated the tax collectors for working with the Romans. So not only was Zacchaeus and other tax collectors cheating people, taking money, taking more money than they're supposed to, but they're working for the enemy, not just working for the government, but working for the, the straight-up enemy country. And one thing I like to think about as an example for that is World War II. And I, I like history. I like history movies and reading about history and history TV shows. And if you, if you watch those movies or, or if you read about it, you'll see that when the, the U.S. Army comes in and liberates the Netherlands or liberates France, that there are collaborators in town. There are people that had been working with the Germans or working with the Nazis. And usually it's, it's depicted briefly in those movies and TV shows how those collaborators are treated. They're never treated well. Oftentimes they're beaten and killed. Sometimes they'd be tarred and feathered, paraded around town with signs, embarrassed and publicly shamed for collaborating with the enemy. And if you think about that, there's a special hatred for collaborators, There's a special hatred for people that are supposed to be with you but are working for the enemy. So we can know right off that Zacchaeus is someone who's hated by everybody. We know that he's a tax collector and he's hated. He's wealthy, so he's really good at his job. It means he's taking from a lot of people, which means he's, he's, he's hated even more. But you can think, too, about his actions, his actions and how, how they've impacted others. So there, there would have been moms in that town that couldn't feed their kids because Zacchaeus took their money. And there would have been families who lost their home because Zacchaeus took their money. There would have been people all throughout that community that would have been hurt by him and angry at him. And we, we think about what he's done and the impact on other people, right? That's easy to picture and easy to imagine. But we also know that when we, when we sin, when we do the wrong thing, when, we, when we're hurting other people, it also impacts us. The more and more we're sinning, the more and more we're doing evil things, we become empty and dead inside. So think about that with Zacchaeus, that he's rich, but in all likelihood, he's probably alone. He probably has no friends. And the friends that he does have are probably just his friends because he's wealthy. He's alienated almost everyone in town. And his relatives probably hate him too, because again, he's a collaborator and a tax collector. So you can think about Zacchaeus as, yes, he's a wealthy man. Yes, he has power and position, but he's probably alone. He's probably friendless. And when you think about that, you can think of him as a very lonely, very sad little man. And I, th- I think you can kind of imagine that from the story. It says, and, and as we know, whenever Jesus is around, there are huge crowds. There are big, big crowds of people following him. And so you can imagine, you know, hundreds of people lined up, right? And they're, they're there to see Jesus. And it's crowded. It's, it's elbow to elbow. It's packed. And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, too. And so you could imagine him walking up to the crowd and maybe tapping somebody on the shoulder. He could have done this. We don't know if he did, but you could imagine it. That He taps somebody on the shoulder and says, hey, can I, can I be in front of you? Hey, can I, can I get to the front? Can I see? And you tap him on the shoulder and somebody turns around and what are they going to see? They're going to see Zacchaeus, the guy who's hated, the guy who they, who they hate and revile. And you, you could imagine, too, he does that, but people might spit at him or kick, kick dirt at him or just give him a cold shoulder and, a, and an evil eye and... And ignore him. You could also imagine him doing that. Nobody's letting him in, but I thought too, well, well, Zacchaeus, it says he's a rich man, right? And so what does a rich person do when they don't get what they want? They, They use their money. So you could again, I could again picture him going up and down the line and saying, hey, can you let me in front? I'll give you $5. I'll give you $20. Let me to the front, please. And trying to use his riches to get to his position. But again, he can't get in there. And so it says he has to climb a tree because he's short. But I also imagine that he's, he's tried other avenues. He knows people in town. He knows local rulers. And he could have said, hey, set me up a meeting with Jesus. I want to talk to him. He could have used his money to get into a position, a better position. But it says he has to climb a tree. And it says he has to do it because he's short. But there were other ways he could have gotten to see Jesus. But he didn't use those and didn't, didn't have those available. And I think it's also interesting when you, when you think about Zacchaeus climbing a tree. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense. If you're short, you got to get up taller. You climb a tree, you stand on something, right? But if you're here in Dallas, uh, who do you normally see climbing trees, right? It's little kids, right? Little kids. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen an adult in a tree, unless they were there to cut it down. But I know you, can, you, you might have a time that maybe they were helping a cat or something. But if you think about it, it's really rare to see an adult in a tree, right? And it's, it's embarrassing. It's awkward. You're, you're in a tree. You're like a kid. You're looking like a fool. Um, you're, you're embarrassing yourself in front of the community. Everybody sees you up in that tree, right? But think about this, too. He's a rich man. Can you imagine a rich man climbing into a tree? The embarrassment of it, the shame of it, a, a guy who's proud and flashy and rich. Those people don't climb trees, right? Right? Um, I'm sure there's, I know there's some examples we were talking about, uh, some, some uh, famous wealthy people, but Jerry Jones, could you imagine him climbing a tree in Dallas, right? I, I couldn't imagine it. He's, he's known for, for, for being a wealthy man and all that goes with it. So we see from Zacchaeus that he's a desperate man. He, he knows there's nobody there to help him. There's not a single person that's going to help him. His heart is probably heavy with all the cheating he's done. He's someone who's at the end of his rope. He's someone who's stuck. He has nowhere to turn to, nowhere to go, and he's stuck. But we know, of course, he doesn't stay stuck. He gets unstuck, and it happens when he meets Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a second, but we're going to jump to the end and look at how he changed. So it says they go to his house, they go to have dinner, they eat, and afterwards we see he's changed. He's no longer in love with money, but he's in love with God. He says, I want to do good. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I'm going to give them back four times more. So this man who had done evil, who had stolen, now he's wanting to do good. The man who had cheated is now trying to make it right. And the man who was rich and cared only for himself, now he cares for others, and especially the needy. He's done a complete 180. John Calvin says about him that he shows that he's changed from a wolf not only into a sheep, but even into a shepherd. He's changed. He's a man who's changed. He no longer takes advantage of people, but he takes care of them, and he helps them. And he does all this. He does it not to impress Jesus, not to, to show Jesus how awesome he is and to show everybody else how great he is. But it happens after he's met Jesus, after he's met Jesus and changed. That there's something powerful and stronger than him, something outside of him that has changed him. And of course, that powerful person is Jesus. When Jesus sees him in the tree, he reaches out to him. And there were, again, there were hundreds of people out there to see Jesus. But Jesus goes to Zacchaeus and he goes to his house and he talks to him. And he has compassion and love and mercy for Zacchaeus, but why? Well, it's easy to say, well, God is love. He loves people. That's what he does, right? But why does he do that for Zacchaeus and not others? We don't know. But here in this story, he reaches Zacchaeus and he helps him. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, the way he looked at Zacchaeus would have been different than how other people in town would have seen Zacchaeus. I mentioned earlier that you know, him being a collaborator, him being a traitor, and how people would have treated him. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, he didn't curse him. He didn't hate him. His eyes weren't filled with hatred and dread. His eyes were filled with happiness. His eyes were filled with love. His eyes sparkled because Jesus was seeing a child of God. That's what Jesus saw when he saw Zacchaeus. And we know this too. When we trust in Jesus, when we become a follower of Jesus, God sees us and his reaction is the same. The same eyes that looked at Zacchaeus and loved him and was happy and welcoming and loving, he doesn't see our sins and our failures or our evil thoughts or our self-hatred or our fears, but he sees one of his children. Hebrews 8.12 promises us, I will remember their sins no more. That's God's promise to us. That he, When he sees us, he's not remembering our sins. He's remembering us as his child. Psalm 18.9 says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Just think about that. God delights in us. He loves us. He enjoys us. He loves spending time with us. He loves being around us. We bring happiness and joy and a sparkle to God's eye. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. It's hard for us to believe as we go through our day and we feel struggles and we feel down. Things around us are pushing against us. But we can hold on to those verses. And a favorite one is Zephaniah 3.17, which says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And the picture there isn't a rejoice like, yay, I'm happy, right? It's, it's a party, it's a celebration, it's dancing. It's a, it's a, think about a wedding feast or a, a birthday party where there's just joy and excitement and everybody's, everybody's just wonder, wonderful to be there, right? That's what the creator of the world sees when he sees us in Christ. And Jesus, when he looked at Zacchaeus, was like that. His eyes were happy and he wanted to hang out with him and have dinner when, when you think about the eyes and the eyes of Jesus, what they look like, uh, a story that I like to use to illustrate that is, we work, we work with a lot of kids on the reservation, and a lot of our kids are coming from uh, broken homes, hurt homes, probably count on one hand the number of kids that are living with their married mother and father. But we have, uh, on a typical Sunday, we'll have 50 to 60 kids that are coming without their parents, and we send out a bus and vans and pick them up, and it's a lot to manage, and sometimes it's a little crazy, but usually it's pretty good. Uh, but we have all these kids, and, and like I said, some of them have uh, birth defects from being exposed to alcohol and drugs as children. And then there's a, a psychological theory called uh, reactive attachment disorder that, that we, we as a staff focus on and, and work on and have different strategies. But um, basically, that, that disorder is, that, is the idea that children are meant to attach to a caregiver, at a young, as a baby especially. And that for various reasons, some children don't attach. sometimes it's because of health problems and they're in a hospital. sometimes it's because the parent has um, mental health issues or the parent is absent or the parent's an addict, and, and there are a lot of emotional, relational problems that flow from that, that disorder. But one of the things that I, a story that I really love and I, I go to again and again, is there's a lady named Nancy Thomas who's written a lot of work on this area, and she works in Colorado and works with kids there and She has a story that that I love, and her story is that whenever you're working with kids in general, but especially kids with attachment disorder, what your eyes communicate to them is very important. And so she, in her, in her work, she talks about taking care of yourself, making sure you have energy. But a key thing she says is whenever you're working with kids, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're thinking about them is communicated through your eyes and is communicated to them in particular. she says that whenever she's working with a kid, she tries to visualize something positive about that kid. You know, they're, they're, they're learning to control their food, or they're no long, they don't hit as much as they used to. And she kind of visualizes that over them while she's working with them. And she, she told a story about working with a kid who everything was going badly. He, there was no improvement in behavior. His emotions hadn't improved. He, he still did all the same things that he was doing weeks back. And she said that she was holding him, and he was, you know, trying to bite her and kick her and all this kind of stuff. And she said she she was kind of scared because she thought there's nothing positive about this kid. There's nothing I can say over him that's good. And she, she was again, she was kind of scared because what am I going to say about him? And so as she was holding him, she started to think, well, he's growing, right? He's he's seven years old. Next year he's going to be eight, and his arms are getting longer. His his uh, feet are getting bigger, his legs are getting stronger, his body's growing. And so that's what she just said to herself over him while she was holding him, that he's growing, he's getting bigger. One day he's going to be a full-grown person, he's going to be an adult, and, some, and hopefully he's going to do something good. But she said it was so important to communicate that through the eyes as she was holding this kid. And I've, I've had similar experiences with, with some of the kids that we've worked with, of, of hold, you know, trying to get a kid out of a difficult situation and it might be church and they're just messing with everything and you try to pick them up and take them out for a second and they, they might bite you or kick at you. And, um, but our eyes communicate so much. And, and you guys know this. You've, you've been around people whose eyes are dead, whose eye, who have given up on life or who are so far gone. Well, they're, no, they're not so far gone for Jesus, but in our eyes, they're so far gone that, there's, that they're dead inside, that they've, there's nothing there, right? And you've also known people whose eyes light up when you see them Maybe you've, uh, think back to when you were first dating or you were engaged or married and, or um, you can think about children, how uh, one of my, my favorite things to think about is my, my brother and his wife have two little kids and I've been there with them hanging out and when my brother comes home from work, he'll open the door and both of them will just go running full of joy and their eyes light up and they're excited and they, they, run, to, they run to my brother and jump in his arms and they're excited to see him, right? We, we all know what that's like to have eyes that are, that are full of hate or full of, or full of death, and eyes that are full of life. So again, Jesus is looking at Zacchaeus with those eyes. He's looking at those eyes of kindness and love. And as the story goes on, you can think about Zacchaeus and Jesus eating together. You know that who do you invite into your home? Who do you invite to eat a meal with you? You invite friends. You invite people that are close to you. You invite people that are family. And we see Jesus treating Zacchaeus like family. He wants to eat with him. He wants to spend time with him. He wants to be with him. And Um, that's what's going on there, that we see God delighting in Zacchaeus. We see Jesus loving him and delighting in him. We also see in this story that Jesus loves the needy. Jesus loves those who are hurting and in pain and at the end of their rope, people that are stuck. We talked about Zacchaeus having no friends, being alone, being at the end of his rope, having a broken heart. And again, why does this happen? Why does God do this? Zephaniah says, God's a mighty warrior who saves God sees things in this world that aren't right. And he says, hey, I'm going to go there and I'm going to fix that. Zacchaeus, you're stuck up in that tree. Come down because we're going to have dinner tonight. You're not alone. You're not hated anymore. And again, you may think, well, Zacchaeus doesn't need anything. He's rich. He's got everything he needs. But he has nothing that really matters. He has nothing that's going to be eternal. And if we follow Jesus and we're called to to help the needy and to love others, it's it's not really that complicated. Uh, It can get complicated, of course. But it can be as simple as being a friend to someone. Having dinner with someone, and with your actions, with your words, communicating to them, you matter, you're valued, you're loved. And we do that again, not to get God points or to, to get God to, to give us an A, plus, but we do it because God loves us. When we look at this story too: is, is our response to Jesus, is it like Zacchaeus, or is it like the people in the crowd? And they say, look at the kind of man Jesus is staying with, because Zacchaeus is a sinner. Who are we in the story? There are, there are some here that know that they're broken. They know that they need Jesus and they, they accept his grace and they know that they're sinners in need of help. And we can also be like the crowd. Are we going to be like Zacchaeus every day on our knees saying, I, I'm like Zacchaeus, I need help. I need, I need Jesus to rescue me and to love me and to feel that love. Because often we forget. We slip into, into being like the crowd and our pride sets in and we start to, to judge others and see sinners and say, well, those people are this and those people are that. But Jesus says in verse 10, the son of man came to seek or came to find lost people and save them. That's why he came. That's why he saves today. He goes and he rescues broken people and broken families and broken communities. He takes people who cheat and hurt others. And Jesus is more stronger or he's stronger. He's stronger and more powerful than those. He's more powerful than our sin. He changes us. He changes our hearts so we can receive his grace and forgiveness. So I I pray that you're reminded of that. You're reminded of what God has done in your life, what God has done in your family, what God's doing in your life and your family. But I also want to say, if if you don't know Jesus, if you've wandered in here today or you're watching online and you're you're, you're thinking, what is is all this about? What is this forgiveness and this love and acceptance that I can have in God? Um, I don't know very many people here, but I'd I'd love to talk to you about that. I know that Colin and uh, Alex and Brian and there are lots of other leaders here that would love to talk to you. and and share with you about what that means, what that looks like to walk with Jesus and to walk with God, to be baptized as we we saw this morning, and to be part of God's family. Jesus says in verse 9, today is the day for this family to be saved. Yes, even this tax collector is one of God's chosen people. God takes everyone. He takes everybody, even the worst people, even those that we would think deserve punishment and death and destruction and all, all sorts of evil things we would put on them. God can forgive any sin, no matter how big or small. And he says, don't wait. Come today. Don't don't hold back. Don't wait till you're better. Don't wait till you've got this straightened up or lined out. Come and know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can worship you. We We can know you. We can see your heart and your love for the lost and the hurting and the poor and the rich that think they don't need you. Father, we pray that as we, as we follow you this week, as we worship you and with our lives, that we would live lives like Zacchaeus, that we would give to others that need help, that we would count others as more important than ourselves. Most of all, that we would see a God who loves us, who rejoices over us, delights in us. Know that relationship that we can have with Jesus of love and acceptance and new life. In Jesus' name, amen.